Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Happy Halloween to you. Or, in some other cases, Happy Reformation Day. Because, well, those things are, at this point, both in Latvia, because Halloween's one of the traditions that have entered our collective consciousness and that we celebrate. So I thought, you know, might as well do a Halloween special episode. I really haven't done these in the past. But um, that left me with a bit of a problem, since I speak about terrible, horrible things on a daily basis. Well, almost. Like, every show is something mostly bad. Sometimes fun, but, you know, talking about gulags and Halloween is um, kind of not Halloween. Besides, all, all the werewolves and vampires and ghosts on the planet combine, even if we presume they're all real, don't hold a candle to um, our beloved Uncle Joe and other dictators, you know. So, let's go with um, something a bit more light-hearted here, since, well, I found a book my friend told me about some incidents still about weirdness in the Swiss military. This is going to be a bit more of a spooky episode. However, you know, to be fair, something spooky about World War II is still more lighthearted than what we do usually, which kind of speaks volumes about what our show is when the Halloween episode where the spooky stuff gets mentioned is the sort of a lighthearted one. Yeah, that's a um, fun thing. We're still working on the Brazil episode, and we're going to have a special collab with uh, the History of Georgia. There's a full name of it, History of Sacravello, Georgia. I can't really pronounce it properly, though, but but this is coming. This is coming. We're recording later tonight, so that's going to be great. However, I wanted you to know that these stories are basically a bit of a tall tale situation. You know, you can't really verify any of them, and they're he said, she said stuff, but these are sort of the urban legends that went through the Soviet military that soldiers would tell each other next to their campfire, and that all of them would, of course, swear were 100% absolutely true, but, you know, obviously, obviously I will not guarantee their truthfulness, nor I will explore how truthful they may be. For that, go visit the Scott and Forrest's Astonishing Legends podcast. I mean, they do all the supernatural stuff, and, um, their show, by the way, is also why I chose not to touch on the Atlov Pass, because the Atlov Pass has been, well, done so many times already, and on podcasts that are my friends, no less, that uh, by this point, a lot of people have done it, and I've actually given advice on some of those shows, so go check out those instead. 
But we have some stuff that is only available in Russian, which you probably haven't heard of, and this concerns World War II, and the strange experiences that soldiers live through there. So, I hope this is interesting and some new material for all of you. And one of the sources that I have is a book by one Alexander Bushkov called Drugaya Ulitsa, or The Other Street, which is, well, something that all of you Russian-speaking listeners of mine should take into account. But yeah, happy Halloween, and uh, let's try to be spooky. Oh, I should, I should never, I should never try to be spooky again on the show, I, I suppose. Anyway, let's hope for a fun episode, and uh, yeah, our webpage is being worked on once again, and it's coming soon, finally, because it turned out we lack the PHP 7 upgrade on our servers. We've done that, now we have PHP 7, it's all gonna go back to the way it was. You'll also again be able to buy all the Rus and Sov stuff, and we're gonna have our own merchandise, t-shirts and everything incoming. But the problem with that is that we'll probably launch this with um, some sort of a fundraising Kickstarter stuff, but not, not that we need funds, but just that uh, we need to order the t-shirts ourselves. It's kind of um, not like the last time where you could just go and click and get the t-shirts done. Uh, this time we need to order them in batches. So to order the first batch, We'll be making, uh, I'll announce it a bit later, I guess, in the next episode, a um, fundraiser where we'll show you the t-shirts more when the, kind of, all the site opens. So then you'll be able to pre-order them, and all the profits from that will basically go to making more t-shirts and mugs and, and, and hoodies and whatever, so that we have a stockpile of them. And after that first event, we will be just available for service, at least for a certain time. Why should you help us in this way when this comes out? And this will also be mentioned in all the social media, of course, is because the first people who buy this stuff, well, they're getting their shipping free. Because you have to realize that, one, this is uh, the era of the global pandemic, so shipping takes a while and it's quite costly, so we will be uh, sadly adding the shipping costs later on, but for those people who will participate in this whole event, so that we could set up and, you know, buy a bunch of t-shirts to mail you, basically, so that everything goes smoothly and without interruptions, uh, for those people, we'll be sending them free of charge. You know, as a gesture of, of goodwill towards you guys who support us. And and yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when, when this pops up, because this has been such a long process of making everything run smoothly and testing things. It's, it's been a bit of a challenge, and since I'm also doing, um, doing a day job now, making ads... Yeah, it's uh, quite, quite, you know, quite difficult to, to pull this off on time, and organizing people is a bit of a chore, too. That's about it for the organizational part. Oh, yeah, and of course, uh, if you're a Patreon member, then I think we will set this one up so that our patrons will never have to pay for shipping for anything on the site. Just so, you know, we'll set up something something there as well, because I think that's just, that's just fair. And if you're listening to some ads here, um, yeah, if you become a patron, we post our episodes on Patreon without ads at all times, so go check that one out. And uh, also, if you're from Ontario, Canada, well then, please spoke me. I think I'm running some political ads there, due to the fact that ACOST messaged us and told us that, well, they asked us as you guys have an election or something coming. And uh, I think that up until the December 2nd, we'll be running some political ads on this show. I'd just like to mention that I am in no way affiliated with the political party. And I think that you should vote according to what's best for you and what's your, what your political consciousness says. However, I also, you know, like the Canadian election money. And even though I might not condone what they stand for, and I honestly don't know what the given party or parties will stand for, I 
presume that the show should be an avenue for critical reasoning and thought, and hey, if someone wants to advertise through Acast on this show about something, well, then they might have found the show applicable to their interests, and they think that, well, maybe the listeners of the show are their potential voters or something, so I, I don't know. Let me know uh, what, what the party even is or something. Just know that I'm not affiliated with them. They offered Acast a lot of money, or so Acast claims this will be good for the revenue of the show, but I don't really know. I really don't know what they stand for. I just think that, hey, if they want to run their ads on my show, I'll let them. I'll, I just let them because, hey, we're a bit of an open platform where this comes in and I can't really control my ads anyway. I, I know that, again, I have been advertising Lockheed Martin at one point. Okay, so when that's out of the way, let's get to the meat of the episode since, well, we have a couple of studies for you to digest in this weird, spooky Halloween season. So, the first study is about the Soviet army in the South. Well, the first two studies will be about this. To give you a bit of a context, during World War II, the Soviets, together with the British, entered Iran. But that was, by the way, even before the Nazis attacked the Soviet Union. It was in early 1941. See, Iran had been, had been kind of flirting with uh, the Nazis for a bit. They had the situation where they had some... Nazi troops there, sort of, kind of, and the government was mostly pro-Axis. They got overthrown and uh, capitulated on the 31st of August, 1941, but there was a thing to basically create a buffer in case Turkey decided to invade there and to secure the oil fields. You know, it was a kind of a lesser-known theater of the whole Second World War. But yes, there was this Anglo-Soviet invasion of Iran together, to secure the southern border. Iran had basically no forces, and it was, well, weird all around. And most of the first early skirmishes and everything wasn't really skirmishes, it was basically just some border clashes, some step, and, and everything happened in places no one really cared about. No one cares about the village with the three homes on, on the hill or whatever. But the Soviets kind of wanted to be more secure. Again, this happened even before the Nazis attacked the Soviet Union, However, at this point in history, we have to remember that, um, well, not like the Soviets cared that much. And the Iranis had some units of Germans there, the instructors and whatnot. It's, it's a bit of a mess, really. I, I'm probably going to have to go into more detail on the whole situation with the lesser-known fronts of the World War II, since there were quite a lot of them, and it's a weird theater. And like I said, the combat action was like, Iranis were under-equipped, under-forced, and... But they had some German squads in there. And at that point, even though formerly they were allied, I presume that this event happened after Germany invaded the Soviet Union. That happened before the Iran capitulated. You know, this involves German troops as well. See, the story is that uh, in one of those places that really no one cares about, you know, as my Australian fans would say, bumblefuck middle of nowhere. That's the, their official term. I didn't invent it, that them's the rules. So over there, a squad, imagine just, you know, a random military squad of the Soviets, from 10 to 15 men strong, really. They've been given a task to basically go from the border forth some kilometers, 10, 15, you know, some stuff. They've been ordered to do some reconnaissance. You know, no one really has gone there before. There haven't been, like, you know, aircrafts have, like, flown over it, taken some pictures, but they're nothing really serious, and they're the guys who just, you know, enter there before you send to the tanks. Because, you know, it's one of those places where no one cares. They have been told from, you know, the aerial reconnaissance that there's a kind of a tiny possibility with 
with maybe some German small squads being sent there. Nothing, nothing really serious, you know. It's a place in, in the desert, and it's kind of weird terrain, and small village here and there, but again, nothing serious. No one cares, but, you know, you, you have to go there to keep the line going. So, basically, they do their dancing stuff in this little scout party, but and they travel for about, like, 10 kilometers or so, and then they notice an APC there. They just use a telescope to spot an APC there. And um, the scouting party there report that an Oberleutnant with some soldiers and officers are just, you know, standing there. But, you know, they're not really doing anything. They're just there. So our Soviet squad, according to the legend, they take position. You know, they kind of lie down to the ground and dig a bit of foxholes. In the sense of that, if the Germans will come, then, you know, we'll, we'll just shoot them together, but no one no one's really seeking a bloodbath, because this is a simple reconnaissance mission. No one cares about this. If the Germans will go away, then they go away, and we don't care. You know, that sort of thing. People are people, and even though they're Germans, it's not like everyone's enthusiastic to fight in the middle of nowhere, in Iran, where it's sandy and everything's miserable. You know, it's like a live and let live attitude. You know, but, but if they come towards them, they have to shoot, and they have to attack, and then they have to write reports. So, you know, they just decide, hey, why should we ambush them and attack them? Let's, let's just wait a bit. You know, what, what if they just leave? It, it'll make our days easier. You know, less risk of us dying. Because at this point in the war, Germans, well, do have better equipment than the Soviets for the most part. And they sit there for, for an hour. They sit there for, for two, five hours even. It's getting a bit late. Still nothing happens, like, at all. So Germans are just sitting there, not moving at all, not even moving a single finger or anything. They, they're just there looking like dolls. But they don't look like dolls, you know, because if you look at them real close through a telescope or some sort of magnification, then you would notice, you know, mannequins from real people. It's not that hard. But they just are sitting there in positions not moving at all. The German officer even has, like, his, his flask in his hand and hasn't moved one bit. Except when wind blows, and there's slight tinges in the wind, and it's just just weird. So they well check optics again and again, and these people there, they're they're being human-like. They're they're not mannequins. They're completely not moving. So after a couple of hours, the sergeant of the squad, who leads the whole thing, because like I said, it's not a lieutenant; it's just a sergeant, and and no one cares about this miserable, forgotten place on the planet Earth. So he decides to basically. Check it out. So these people advance very carefully, though. You know, drag themselves through the sand, and, and they, they crawl a bit, and, you know, just to take a look. And they come closer, the Germans are still not moving at all. And they come, like, really close to the Germans, and, and they're just not moving. Because they're all dead. They seem to be dead, they're not even breathing. But they're still in their sanding position, sitting position, they're just... They're not laying on the ground, there's no blood, there's nothing. It just looks like they're, they're all frozen in place. Soviet squad just goes around and checks for mines, checks for whatever could have killed them, because it's a weird position, since, like I said, Iran is a country that at this point in history is friendly to the Axis powers, is being invaded together by the British and the Soviets, and while they were doing this, the Germans invaded the Soviet Union. It's, it's uh, lots of chaos, lots of mess, right? But there could be mines there? I mean, who knows, right? But there are no mines, there's nothing. So then, one of the squad decides to basically touch them and fixes his bayonet. And, and together with the sergeant, they just poke them. 
and and that's kind of weird because this is what would have happened because as soon as they poked them with the bayonets, all these people, all these Germans, just instantly turned to ash. According to this report, all the Germans, well, except for the APC, of course, everything just instantly turned to ash and were blown off by the wind. Now, this obviously freaked everyone out, but according to my aforementioned author, this was written in the official reports. And it is kind of creepy, because like I said, there was no, no blood and no bullets and, and nothing really. Just that. Another example of why the soldiers tend to be superstitious. Well, more superstitious than normal people anyways. Navy is its own beast, as far as I know. But yeah, this is uh, the first case where the Soviets experienced something truly weird. Here's another one for you. From the same region, about the same time. Like I said, all this Iran invasion was a massive mess. In this case, another group drives in an APC. The task is similar to the previous story, but this time it's scouting a road with everything that entails. This is in a bit more central location. There is a desert there, so everyone has obviously water and other supplies necessary, and they're sent to scout in force. So, you know, there's um, a young officer, young and ambitious, and, and two soldiers in this case. And this story was, um, was told by one of the soldiers. Three people driving a car, split off from the rest of their squad, just to scout a road and surrounding areas. For mines, for whatever. So they, you know, drive on this road next to a bunch of abandoned villages and all the other little houses. Again, we're talking about places that have been lost or, or people have went away because this is time where Soviet Union and Britain invades Iran. The protocol there for them is to make contacts now and then and uh, they're being given orders to just contact the base and just speak with them and inform them about what's happening because there's a group of soldiers following behind them some kilometers away. This is a kind of a, a forward party who are just going to scout for mines or whatever because this is a bit more known area. And they're doing that for a few hours and, and if everything goes smoothly. And they get static now and then, but that's kind of written off as a really crap radio station. I mean, this is the early World War II, and the equipment tended to break down, and it's, you know, sand gets everywhere. It's coarse and bad, just like Anakin said in Star Wars, the bad prequel movies. So, you know. But then, kind of a sandstorm begins. So their motor breaks down and stalls completely. So they also have a protocol that these folks can technically be picked up with aviation, you know, just in case. Obviously, that can only be done if they actually have a connection. You know, not just the static that they've been getting and there are three people there. Maybe a small plane will fly over them. Who knows? It's just that they're in one of those abandoned villages and the road's there and everything's sandy. No, no one's having a good day. But there's an issue. After a while, like in all good horror movies, all the connections just die off. Like, completely die off, and they just get static everywhere. So, you know, they decide to maybe, maybe kind of explore the village and everything, and take a look at what's happening there, because, well, what else are you going to do? They have to take a bit of a shelter, but, you know, stuff may be mined, and no one really knows what's going on. So, they move into an area that's just, you know, on the outskirts of this village, that's, that's basically just some houses built among dunes in the desert. So, you know, they, they have scouted all through the village, everything seems kind of okay, they're doing their jobs, and but the commander, at this point, the young and ambitious one, as they enter this position, the commander states, look, 
Whoa, 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 whoa. Something's weird over there in the sand. We don't know what's up. That's something strange is there. Maybe mines, maybe someone's dug in. But better take some position. So they take position and they kind of spot that this little tiny hill there with the sand, which is kind of out of place in all the dunes. Because, you know, people know how standard dunes look like. It, it's it, it's moving a bit. Just a bit. Not not a lot. Just, you know, it's it's noticeable, but but doesn't move too fast. It's kind of weird. So the young commander sends soldier Ivanov to go check it out. You know, standard procedure. Go poke it with a bayonet, tell it to surrender, explain to him the glory of Lenin and Stalin's teachings, then either bury it over there or just, you know, whatever. Don't bring it home, it's bad for your health and, and the kids won't love it. So Ivanov goes there on this little tiny hill with sand and, you know, pokes it, checks it out. But then he yells back to people, well, you know, it's just basically just sand. There's nothing really there. So he decides that this is the last part of the whole village and, you know, no one will care. Just decides to turn around after reporting and to take a piss, really, because, well, what you gonna do? It's been a sandstorm. Everything's bad. The more you've stalled, you've done your job and you've poked the little weird hill. But as he starts to take a piss, really, a small wind blows. The sand gathers around Ivanov, engulfing him, forming a sort of a cocoon around him, and then he's just gone. Ivanov disappears. The officer just uh, is blinking and doesn't understand what's happening. Then the guy who told the story, he just goes there. And they think it's kind of quicksand normally. So, bit of a walk, you know, some, some 200 meters. They just move towards slowly, because it's, it's kind of creepy just to lose your squad mate, right? But as they come closer, according to the story, the wind blows... And pushes the sand away. And what's left of Soldier Ivanov is just his metal belt. Soldier Ivanov was never seen again. But somewhere in the distance, they see another tiny little hill made out of sand sticking out of the dunes. How's that for a creepy soldier story to you guys? I mean, like I said, I'm I'm not vouching for their realism. Might as well they have all been invented. But uh, yeah, as if World War II wasn't creepy enough already. And I'm pretty sure if you'd ask your relatives who'd served in the army at the time, yeah, you'd probably hear something similar from people who served in the western parts of Europe as well. Hello there. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at russansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to russansov.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast Brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And to end this on a kind of a positive note, this one's a bit more Soviety, not army though, although it concerns it. This one's from the book by Alexander Bushkov, and the another street one. I can vouch even less for the truthfulness of this story than I could for the previous ones because they're all tall tales. But then again, this is what Halloween is for. I'll read you this one in full because it's a bizarre story again, and it's about fishing, and it happened after the war. And it concerns one of the largest rivers in all of Soviet Union, since we like to fish here a lot. Basically, everyone fishes. I, I do that sometimes, too. And um, this is one of those weird, again, urban legend stories that uh, just makes you freak out a bit. May fishing. I myself am a Volzhan, living here for generations, a true Volgar. All my life, with breaks for study and war, I've spent here on the Volga mother. I love her although now she's no longer the same, disfigured by great construction projects. By the way, at one time I was persuaded to go to the naval school precisely because I am a Volzhan. The military commissar reasoned unpretentiously. They say, you are no stranger to water. There's a lot of water there and there, and you grew up on large river, swim like a fish. Only I managed to hang out. I don't think I would have been able to explain my thoughts, the difference between the Volga and the sea. Yes, even now, I could not formulate precisely. See, there's a lot of water in the Volga and a lot in the sea, but I don't like the sea at all. It's different. Different type of water. Either the fact that it's the sea, and a matter of fact, you know, the sea usually has the only one coast that you can see, or whatever, can't really explain it. In a word, I am completely indifferent to the sea, I just like my Volga River. In order not to anger the military commissar and not to break my brains too much, I didn't get into these tongue-tied explanations. I came up with a more convincing excuse. They say, although I grew up on the river, I can't stand the pitching at all. They say every time I got on a boat in bad weather, and the Volga is a very healthy river, I fell in layer and turned inside out. It was terrible. Seasickness, comrade military commissar, can't really do that. And uh, if I have seasickness on the river, what will happen to me in the sea? And this worked for me. There was no medical commission under the military commissar that could determine on the fly whether a person had sickness or not. It seems like you can't really install it, too, to other people. The military commissar scratched the back of his head and, instead of a naval one, wrote me a referral to an artillery school. As you know, I had excellent grades in mathematics, which is quite necessary in artillery. At this point, I did not fight back. Cannons are an interesting thing. Went through the whole war as gunmen. So this is where I'm leading. In a war, in addition to a passionate desire to return alive and untouched, many still have a constant longing for something of their old peaceful pre-war past. One dreams of his former craft at night, from teaching to carpentry, someone haunted by former hobbies. In general, it is understandable, right? 
I had one sergeant mayor, a Siberian, who yearned for pine nuts. <laughs> Jora, the hairdresser, he dreamed aloud how he would compose new hairstyles for the ladies. But I often dreamed of fishing. I was an avid fisherman. Ever since my young age, whenever I was able to, I just put a fly on the hook and try to catch something like that. Well, after a while, time when we boys had, like, you know, real hooks and real instruments, and sometimes a line, which was not braided from horsehair for once, but the real one, from a real shop, you know, that's when you get used to Volga. And it so happened, and nothing surprising really, that during the whole war, I did not have a chance to fish for real. A couple of times finding ourselves in a suitable place, and with one biscuit in our pocket, you know, they solved the matter in a simple soldier way. Threw grenades in the river to catch fish, but uh, to call it fishing, yeah, that's just massacre of fish, not true fishing. So, after the victory, at the end of May, our artillery regiment was deployed in Slovakia, in the immediate vicinity of the Morava River. This river, of course, is ridiculous to compare with the Volga, but as soon as we drove into the village during our reconnaissance and I saw boats, dry nets, and fishing rods, I instantly understood. Even though the river is not quite cool compared to the Volga, it still has fish. I mean, seriously, you can see the equipment there. My heart leapt. Fortunately, there were absolutely no obstacles. It turned out to be as easy as shelling pears to ask the authorities to go fishing. Later, they told me that the regiment commander even set me up as an example. You see, you goofed, he said. The major is drawn to cultural entertainment, and you only know that at any convenient and inconvenient occasion you crack vodka and drive the local girls all the time. Although he himself, between us, preferred exactly those entertainments that his position was supposed to condemn aloud, but he knew how to do things. Not like people who got into serious problems because of alcohol and female sex. And, you know, it was um, a peaceful atmosphere. The war was over, everyone was alive. Obviously, war discipline still remained war discipline, but some sort of bolts really relaxed at a time and everyone was like, eh, whatever. Going fishing as a cultural tradition, very good example, soldier. So, you know, I made acquaintance with one Slovak. A respectable person, family, kept three boats, fed mainly from the river. As they say, and not in vain, a fisherman seeks a fisherman from the far. The attitude of the locals towards us was excellent, a lot of things would be done for you out of sincere friendship. Not to mention such a trifle as to borrow a boat of fishing rods. In general, the Slovaks are good people. I really like them. Czechs, you know, uh, Well, somehow Czechs are slightly not right. And, uh, kind of weird, too. And, kind of, the language of the Slovaks is such that it's always possible, with difficulty, to each other and agree. Only it turned out, contrary to the proverb, it is more difficult for a fisherman than for others. The fish we have, and that they have, in Slovakia, have different names. And if that is no fleshly caught or fish or pictures at hand, then it's impossible to understand what kind of fish he's telling me about, the Slovak guy. You can't really come to an agreement on the fingers or just show with your hands, because, well, a salmon is a salmon, and various animal names really differ between languages. A side note here, salmon is lasis in Latvian. Almost no similarities, really. Even if I don't even know what kind of fish I'm catching, you know, I, I still enjoyed it a lot. Moreover, it's easier to agree on details. Where are the fishing spots? What the fish for? Yeah, that's much easier to understand. In a word, after a couple of days I went to fish in the morning dawn. The river in these places is wide and deep, navigable. The current is slow, and I floated downstream almost not working with my oars. The dawn was approaching, and, uh, well, my soul was so singing that words can't describe it, it was amazing. 
and I felt alive, and my arms and legs were intact. Something is screwed on my chest and tingling, and my parents write that they are alive and well, and the girl I like, and I know is not married, and and now she's just there, and everything everything felt like weird gambling anticipation. I felt good after all this war. I easily found the place that my Slovak friend Pan Kovalik was describing. Here it was, a scrap. Ah, and a grove here. And uh, under a scrap in the bottom pit, these, uh, the fish settle for the night. Basically, I didn't understand what kind of fish, but the locals had been catching them from time immemorial. And, well, apparently they were quite big. Although, knowing uh, our fishing habit and fishermen, the sizes, well, could have been halved and maybe cut down even more. I didn't really care. At the point, I was so happy because I was alive, my family was alive, the war had ended, and I was just fishing once again. When I hit the spot, carefully, very carefully, I lowered the anchor overboard. A simple weighty boulder in a secure canvas bag. I etched out the rope until it felt like a ring on the water. That's it, anchored. I set up four fishing rods. Turned out that my hands themselves remembered how and what exactly, pure muscle memory. Four floats lay on the soul water. All that was left was to sit and wait for those with incomprehensible names to get their sleep down there, get their food. And, uh, you know, maybe they want to have some breakfast. I wrapped myself up in my gray coat more tightly. You know, it's cool in the morning in Slovakia. And even more so on the river. So, I was just sitting there, mindlessly and peacefully enjoying life. The sun was already risen above the horizon, the fog was gradually melted away, and everything was just so silent. Only sometimes quiet, indistinct babbling, splashing, bubbling was heard, but this was familiar to me through and through, because, you know, the river is always filled with such various sounds, which often can't be named, and... That's why I feel at all at home. Of course, you can't compare this river with Volga, but let's not get picky here. And this is the moment where they, it, the thing, appeared. They moved from left to right about ten meters from the boat, in a perfect line of regular intervals. Everything looked like the whirlpool funnel, the diameter of a saucer and the depth of a palm, geometrically regular cones with their tops upside down. The speed of rotation of the water in the funnels was, judging by estimates, rather high. The interior of the overturned cones seemed more likely not water, but a solid surface. This strange line did not move so fast, kind of like a man walking at a brisk pace, but not running. I counted them right there, eleven. The artillery man, you know, he has a good eye. All the time, after all, he has to keep several moving objects in his field of view, to estimate the speed, distance, and much more at the pace. Especially with us, divisional who really did not fire from stationary close positions leading fire, but we had to act directly in the battlefield. I looked at whatever that was for a while. They moved so beautifully, and then it seemed like a knock. This does not happen. There are no such whirlpools, strangely stable, so to speak, and even moving upstream like a flock of ducks. Whirlpools on the river are a common thing, only they're always in the same place but I have never heard of anything like this in my whole life. And then they turned to me. The slender line crumbled, went as if in a bunch, then very close to the boat again stretched out in the line, stood in place as if there was no current at all. Kind of dumb, stupid thought, but it looked like someone was looking at me. But who? The water was not particularly clear, but I did not notice that in the water under them at least something could be seen. As if they would be by themselves, and I didn't know what was happening. They began to circle around the boat. Slowly, as if lazily, no longer keeping their distance. One faster, the other slower, others now and then swimming closer, but not really close. 
they would move towards uh, me and, and sail away, and they were just whirling around me for unknown reasons. I was here, and I was a combat officer, and a native of the Volga, and I felt somehow uncomfortable. Just because I knew for sure, this should not be on the river, neither on the Volga or the local Morava, or even on some Ganges, for all I care. I knew what I was seeing and hearing. I'm a combat officer after all, but this... Yeah. I just sat there and they circled and circled and my soul, everything was more and more restless. Of course I forgot to think about the fishing rods. Suddenly anger rolled over me from the most complete misunderstanding of the spectacle and I was about to take up the oar to move one at a time, which was spinning very close. But something stopped. After all, I didn't know what there was. Like, I used the oar. It was weird... The sudden situation changed. I felt like I was throwing myself into battle. Randomly. Not knowing what kind of enemy was in front of me. What strength he had. It's interesting that I somehow immediately started mentally calling them it. Well, it can't be simple water, I thought. There must be something else behind all of this. I started to estimate without panic. What if it turns the boat over for me? What if it is such that he can do it? Will the boat turn over? Will I have the somersault? Will I swim to the shore? About a hundred meters, water's calm. In principle, it's okay. I'm a Volga man. I'll take off my boots quickly, I'll swim in my clothes, there's nothing to do. But, you know, in case of whatever, it'll test me. At one time, I um, even thought about shooting the nearest one. I had a pistol in my holster, and it was with me. The spare clip in my pocket, the distance was trifling. But again, I thought, what if I shoot it, what will I get back? I don't remember how exactly long it went on. I figured out, not so long, a few minutes. You know, really didn't count time at that point. Finally, they moved away from me. Again, lined up in a neat line. An absurd idea, but the impression is that they got tired of me. And we went again against the current in the same direction at about the same speed. And something chilled me, although the sound was really high and I had my overcoat. In short, I took up the oars and without hesitation began to row to the shore. Somehow I didn't want to stay here any longer for the life of me. On the river, where such incomprehensible wonders hang around. This surprised me the most of all, but what was really there frightened me. Of course, the river is something that, you know, could be weird, but this clearly did not fit into historical materialism, you know? Stuff we've been taught at schools. I myself did not come across anything like that either before the war or after on the Volga, but the old people and the younger people told all sorts of things. And the catch is what people often told, who are not at all inclined to compose fairy tales and play their own. I don't want to say that I believe in them 100%, but in life, anything can happen. Pan Kovalyak, of course, was terribly surprised to see me dock without a single fish. I described to him what and how and whatever, and, you know, the full impression that he himself was seriously surprised, scratches my head and swears and swears again, and tells me that this is the first time he hears about such a curiosity. We went with him to the inn, to the Pan Harach. He spoke Russian very decently. He surrendered to us as a prisoner back in the 14th year. He lived with us for 8 years, so he learned to understand us. He said that he had fought in the Red Army. Maybe he didn't lie. You know, there were such people, we know that. There were several other people sitting there. They undertook to interpret everything together. They shrugged their soldiers, shrugged their hands. Everyone just came together and thought about this. I already spoke in as much detail as I could. As if I was reporting to the division headquarters. They shook their heads. Never happened. Only one grandpa. He mostly listened. Didn't go into the chatter. He puffed on his pipe and said something like this. If you live in the river for a hundred years, you will not 
be fully able to comprehend it until the end. Very true, from my opinion. After that, caught fish there heartily, but exclusively from the shore. Somehow I decidedly did not want to swim out to the rapids after such a meeting. I hate the things I don't understand, and I never saw these strange whirlpools again. And if the locals did see them, no one told me about it. And here's another thing. As if for some time after, and they were a little cautious in the river or something. Pankovalik, two days later, sailed away for an hour with local priest, and uh, I'm pretty sure he went to that very favorite spot of mine. And, quite clearly, not to catch fish. Well, that's their own business. They were very religious there. I still don't understand what it was. If you don't understand yourself, then you can't really explain it. Okay, and that's the final story, and I hope you enjoyed this, because... Oh boy, I'm not one for paranormal theories much. I... I'm interested into all sorts of futurism, which is why I want to do one with Isaac Arthur too, but um, I hope you enjoyed these weird and spooky tales in this Halloween or Reformation Day for um, all of you Lutherans out there who celebrate that thing. Just like I do, actually, but um, yeah. Not one to buy in such studies, but hey, Halloween for all of you. Have a nice night. Please, uh, please go to our homepage. Our donate button still works there. You know, it's there. Click on the little PayPal thing. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Throw us a buck or two. Order our t-shirts when they come up. And stay safe. Follow us on social media. Become our patron. And, uh, yeah, interviews coming, a lot of fun stuff's coming. And have a spooky Halloween, Tavarishi. Although scientific Marxism clearly denies existence of any such spirits or paranormal activities because they clearly oppose the workers' revolution. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. <laughs>